Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Conversations on Conversations, where each week we explore a topic to have us help us have better conversations with ourselves and with others. I'm your host, Sarah Noel Wilson, and I know I say I'm excited every week, but I am giddy. Uh, I'm giddy to introduce you to our guest this week. I promise you have a notepad, bring a highlighter. Um, As I read her book, I went through not one, not two, but three highlighters because I was highlighting so much. So our guest this week is Tara J. Frank. And let me tell you a little bit about her. Tara J. Frank is an equity strategist who has advised and educated thousands of Fortune 500 executives across multiple industries and large member organizations. Her work is fueled by a deep belief, I love this, in the creative power and potential of everyone, focuses on building bridges between people, ideas, and opportunity. Before founding her culture and leadership consultancy, Frank spent 21 years at Hallmark Cards. I love your career. I can't wait to dig in. Where she served in multiple executive roles, including vice president of creative writing and editorial, vice president of business innovation, vice president of multicultural strategy, and corporate culture advisor to the president. Tara resides in Dallas, Texas with her husband, two of their six children, and their three dogs. She's also a proud Spelman alumna and a member of the Executive Leadership Council. Network of Executive Women, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority, and was recently named a 2022 Success 125 honoree by Success Magazine and is listed among Core Magazine's 100 Most Influential Blacks in 2022. She recently authored this unbelievable book that just published on May 3rd, The Waymakers, which I'll hold up for those who are joining us virtually. Tara, welcome. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's always weird to hear somebody talk about your background and the things that you've done. It's like, who are they talking about? Oh, that's me. I am so happy to be here with you. So, so happy. Thank you for inviting me. What what else would you want people to know about you? You know, we've had other guests like I'm listening to this and I'm listening to you say the bio, but that doesn't say anything about, you know, these components of my life. So what else would you want our audience to know about you? You pretty much nailed it, other than my strange obsession with dark chocolate Mm. and Riesling. I mean, I kind of feel like that's all you missed. Everything (laughs) else is in there. You know, my husband is uh, Captain America in my Mm. own mind and heart, so he's my favorite person. Um, I do have lots of children. We have a new granddaughter. Mm. So, yeah, no, that, you know... You got it. You got it. Okay. I have a question. Always into dark chocolate? Was this a new thing? Because I know for me, when I was a child, it was too bitter. And then at some point, something shifted and it became the preference. (laughs) Why do I love this question so much? Yes, you're absolutely right. (laughs) We're digging deep here. This is... (laughs) I know. We're going like to the heart of the matter. (laughs) I liked Hershey Kisses chocolate formula when Mm. I was a kid. So milk chocolate, it was a lot sweeter. As I got older, for sure, yes, I developed um, a love for, a deep and abiding love, might I say, for dark chocolate. I'm a bit of a chocolate connoisseur. Like, I'm actually a chocolate snob. My Mm. husband makes fun of me all the time. People will give me a chocolate bar, and sometimes he'll look at it and be like, she's not going to eat that. (laughs) (laughs) okay wait wait so inquiring minds need to know and by inquiring minds i mean singular me 
best chocolate? What's what's well, your I favorite? Love, so I love Vosges chocolate bars. Like I don't know if you've ever had Vosges. V O S G E S. I believe they're based in Chicago. It's a woman-owned chocolate, like chocolatier, like gourmet mm. chocolate bars. Um, they're really good because they're also interesting. Like she has a a bacon bar you know, a black salt caramel bar. Like I'm interested in just the combination of all the things I love inside and around dark chocolate. I love this about you. And now I want that. I want that candy. I need to get that chocolate bar. All right. You can. You can order it, but that's sometimes problematic because, you know, it's hot now. <laughs> right. <laughs> and even I'm melting when I'm out there right now yeah, in the, too. the heat. Uh, so I, you know, one of the things we'll spend quite a bit of time on is, is obviously is the work that you've done and and the, the book that you've just released. So first and foremost, congratulations. It Thank is you. no small feat to write a book and to write and work on a book during the pandemic uh, is incredibly difficult and to write a book that is so practical powerful um there's um almost a a dangerous simplicity in in Mm -hmm. in it um and and I'm, i'm not exaggerating for the audience i did go through three highlighters i started with yellow i moved to green and then i had to finish up with pink because there was so there was so much and so at first i just you know from an author to author, what was the experience like for you going through the process of writing this book? Because I've, I've heard you in, in the book, you even talk about how there's this deeper calling for you of mm-hmm. this is this is the work that you were supposed to do. So what was that experience like? Thank you for asking that. I, I will tell you that I knew I had another book in me, but I wasn't sure yet what it was supposed to be about. And then March 2020 came, Mm. pandemic. May 2020 came, the murder of George Floyd. The summer of 2020 came, which I think about as the calm before the storm, meaning Mm. all my clients, you know, companies pressed pause on everything they had intended to do culturally and from a leadership perspective, because they were trying to figure out how to survive Mm. this pandemic that none of us anticipated and were not prepared for. And then in the fall, you know, late summer, early fall, they kind of started calling back and began asking me to do things with them and for them that we had not ever done before. Hmm. And a lot of that clearly was bringing people together to help their leadership. I work mostly with high level leaders, help them understand racism, um, the deeply entrenched right? Roots of racism, the, as I talk about it in the book, the sweeping branches of Mm. racism and all the ways that racism maybe could be, is impacting their talent today. So it shifted the focus of my business a little bit. Like I was already working on diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it really shifted it. It made it a lot more pointed. And I realized that the bridge builder in me who has always been there really had to come forward in a, a, a very overt mm. um, and courageous way because building bridges is what people needed right now. 
mm. bridges of understanding, right? Bridges of, of insight, bridges between individuals, bridges between where companies were now and where they wanted to be tomorrow. Like it was just one big, massive, you know, bridge building requirement. Um, and I needed to figure out how to help. So the idea for the book came in that place, like in that time when I just saw what leaders were needing most and what they were struggling with. So that was um, that was really clear to me. I will also tell you, I went through a lot of back and forth just about how I wanted to publish the book, who I wanted mm, to publish the book. Mm. Do I need an agent or do I mm. not need an agent? I did this proposal and 72,000 versions of it. Like that whole part of the process was really stressful for me because what I wanted to do is just write the book I knew people needed and then get it in their doggone hands. Like <laughs> I am not, I have a chief operating officer because she is brilliant at process and it is not my thing. Meaning I'm an innovator. I'm a pioneer. I have an idea. I think you need it. I want to get it to you. I don't want to go through 75 steps right? <laughs> because we need to capture it for some reason later. Like I'm just not good at that. So you know, finally kind of navigated my way through that. And then somebody asked me last week, Sarah, how long did it take you to write the book? I will say I had 25% of it written prior to spring of 2021, just in pieces and parts. Mm -hmm. And I wrote the rest of it in three months. Wow. It I was mean, like downloaded to me, if that makes sense. Like it totally. came pouring out. You and I both know the editing process mm -hmm. is, is long and arduous, and that was true for me as well. But the writing, mm. it just kind of came out. I mean, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's maybe oversimplistic to say three months, but you've been thinking about this, experiencing it, working with leaders, and that moment yeah. of crystallization of this is it. I, I, I mean, I, for people who haven't gone through the process of writing a book or, it's an incredibly vulnerable process, or it can be. It certainly, it certainly was for me. And, and to hear, to hear your process and to hear again, just in the time of doing it also just, you know, what's coming up for me as I'm hearing you is like, well, this is clearly the book that needed to be written, right? This was the book that, uh, this was the work that you needed to put out. And also it was very clear from reading the book. This is the book that we all need. Um, Thank you and, for, for saying that. I'm, yeah. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. I, well, and I had shared that with you when I, when I started reading it and, and this is something I'm not shy about talking with my ADHD. It's really hard for me to stay focused on a book for uh, more than the half of it. You know, it's sort of, I get out of it what I need to, and it's not a yep. disparaging to the, uh, to the author or the content. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. And now I feel like I need to go back and process it a few more times. And, and, and something that I realized for me is where, where I am in my journey, both as a business owner and the work we're doing, my journey as a white woman, right? What's the role I'm playing? It felt like truly it was, oh, this is the book that I've been waiting for to connect dots that were loose for me and I didn't know how to connect it. I didn't know how to, how to see even more clearly the role I could play in the work we were doing. And, um, you know, I was reading it on the plane and just 
aggressively flipping and highlighting and <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> you know and the person next to me is just like what is you're having this out like, of body are you experience okay? <laughs> I was listening to my classical Disney music that I do when I ride and <laughs> on planes and just, you know, I'm processing it. I so let's so let's get into this idea of the waymakers. That that is such a intentional language. It's so descriptive. Mm-hmm. It's a noun and it's a verb, right? Of waymaking. Mm-hmm. Talk you to us it. A, Yeah, talk to us about it's kind of like leadership. I always say, no, it's not a role, it's an act. Um mm-hmm. so talk to us about what does it mean to be a waymaker? Yes. So waymakers are people with a heart to lead who open doors for those who have been left behind, cast aside, remove barriers, right? Remove the obstacles out of their way. And as I like to say, ushers them through to higher levels of contribution. Mm. Mm. I think about it, to your point, as a very deliberate act or series of acts. So I want to say, to be clear, that the idea of allyship is something I'm passionate about, something I believe in. I see waymaking as different than how we Mm. have come to describe allyship. Mm, Say more. I think that I think the way experts mean allyship is similar to waymakers, but I think the way people have come to understand allyship is more passive mm. than how I explain and expect waymaking to manifest. So when we talk about allyship, I think people think it's being a cheerleader. I think people believe it's being a defender at at certain times when a defender is needed. I think people believe that it is uh, being supportive of people who need support. And again, all that is important. I am not disparaging the idea of allyship. I see Waymakers as this. So let's say you and I, Sarah, work together in an environment and you are of a marginalized group or historically excluded group. And I am a high-level leader with power and position. Waymakers would see you, be like, I don't know her. I probably should. Hmm. Would first maybe try to get to know you. If I saw light in you, I would reflect it back to you on purpose. Hmm. Do you understand? Do you see the gifts that you have that are distinctive, you know, that are differentiated that I believe could add value to this project or to this business or to this team? Are you aware of them? Here are some ways you can cultivate them. I may also say, hmm, my peer so-and-so has a job opening up. While Sarah may not have done this exact thing before, I believe with the skills I've seen her demonstrate and the interest, the aspiration she has, she would be a good bet for him or her in this particular role. I'm going to go on and advocate for that. I'm then going to help her make sure she understands what success looks like in that role. And Mm -hmm. if I feel like there's something in the way between where she is and being successful in that role, guess what? I'm going to move it. That to me is way making. Some people would call it sponsorship, but it's more than speaking your name in a room you're not in. Mm. It's more than putting you in a role. It, it is literally making a 
way. So it is, it is active, but it is not an act. It is a series of conscious and deliberate acts that helps you get to your ultimate, right, contribution. I'm, I'm just sitting with all of that. I mean, there's <laughs> so, so, so much there. And, and one of the things that's coming up for me is, you know, that differentiator of allyship is you're, you're aware, but it's passive. Whereas what I hear you say is you're, you're very aware of going back to your language, all the branches, all the branches uh-huh. of a racism show up, all the branches where other systems of oppression show up, right, of sexism and homophobia, all of that from the standpoint of and you're trimming them along the way, like as you were talking, it's you're very aware. And that that was something that reading your book was you were showing in so many different ways what it looks like, again, not just to to be supportive of someone, but how do we. For example, how do we need to see, understand patterns of bias and feedback? And mm-hmm. what does it look like to interrupt it in that moment? What is yes. understanding that um, that uh, if somebody has been uh, experienced, you know, oppression and, and is a marginalized individual, that their sense of self and identity has, I mean, there's been such a cost and, and right. that and hearing that language of I see your light and I'm going to reflect it back that that it's it's more than just, hey, I'm supporting you. It's mm-hmm. I see the whole landscape and I'm going to do everything. I just I'm I'm saying this out loud, not to repeat what you just said. Part of this is me processing it and wanting to internalize mm-hmm. it for myself because it's it's so powerful. And. Well, it means a lot to me, honestly, to hear you say that because I do, you know, I, I thought about this book when I, I'm also a strategist, right? So when I went to write The Waymakers, I didn't just kind of say, I need to write this book and talk about these things. I also stepped back and I said, what do I want the book to be comprised of? Mm. Like, how do I make sure that this book is true? Mm. Right. That it is useful, that it is um, insightful and also inspiring, because I believe that people need to be not only equipped to make a way, but also inspired to make a way. I think Mm. both those things need to happen, which is why the subtitle is clearing the path to workplace equity with competence and confidence. That's like really, you know, purposeful for me. So I ask myself all those questions and, and that's why, quite honestly, you know, we did the body of proprietary research, right, that I talk about in chapter six, Mm. getting those hundreds of stories from employees across all dimensions of difference about times they felt seen, respected, valued, and protected, and times they felt invisible, disrespected, you know, underappreciated and scrutinized. It's why that research was done. It's why we interviewed 30 DEI experts, right? Who whose experience, it sounds so silly when I say it, but whose experience spans literally 600 right. years and 100 companies. Mm-hmm. It's it's why I tapped into my own observational experience and experience experience, mm-hmm. right? It's all of those pieces and parts for me had to come together in this book because I didn't want it to be just another opinion piece. Mm. And opinions are beautiful. 
Like, don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. Some I know people who have the most glorious opinions, who, you know, that ever existed. And I'm inspired by those opinions. But for me, this was a, I was writing a tool. Yeah. And I wanted leaders with power and position to not only read it, but to use it, to use it to make a way for somebody else. More with Tara J. Frank in a moment. I will say from my personal experience that we have a philosophy that we we lovingly say theory is great, tools are better. Yeah. Right? Theory is valuable, but but knowing what does it actually look like in practice and not always what what really struck me because I'm also a firm believer that micro actions can lead to macro impact, right? Yes. That sometimes I think that, you know, I've, I know I've experienced this for myself. I know that at any time that we're doing any kind of work with leaders from a cultural perspective, uh, sometimes things can feel so overwhelming. It can feel so complex. And, mm-hmm. and I, I would argue that, we, we we use the language of adaptive leadership of a technical problem versus an adaptive challenge, which I, I made the connection in your language of there's system issues and then there's human mm-hmm. problems, right? Mm-hmm. And we need to to work on both. And yep. and I think when it comes to dismantling racism and systems of oppression, it's like the greatest adaptive challenge we are facing. There is not one solution. And so it, it can be easy. And we'll talk about the fence sitters here in a moment, which... Yeah. Boy, I tell you what, I'm seeing it everywhere. I mean, I it's come up in conversation. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm just, I, I just, I'm just going to be the conduit for the Tara show of here's oh, all God. the all the insights because because and so then the the c- complexity and the uncertainty and then you add in the emotional heat can can go. Oh, I don't know what to do. Therefore, I'm going mm-hmm. to step out. Right. That and I say that. As right as a white woman, it's real easy to go. It's overwhelming. I'm going to step out, and um, and what was so? Can I? Can I? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Please, no. Please do. No, I was going to say. You know what's so powerful about what you just said, and I think I said this in the book, but if not, I've said it since. That the work is not easy, but it is simple. So when Mm. when we started, you were talking about you know it's deceptively or dangerously simple. That is on purpose. Yeah. Because to your point, we really, we make this so hard in our minds. Mm. And the the reason why we make it so hard to lead equitably and inclusively is because we are afraid of doing it wrong. So think about anything in your life that you were afraid of doing wrong. You make it super hard in your head. Like Mm. I have anxiety I've had generalized anxiety since I was young. I didn't drive till I was 21. Do you know why? Mm. Because every time I thought about getting my license to drive, I started making it so hard in my head. Oh my God. And there are all the signs and there are all the cars and they're going a different way than you. And then they're like the on-ramps, but then you have to merge and you have to get (laughs) off and be at the right rate of speed. Like I did all this in my head to convince myself that I wasn't going to be able to do it because I was afraid to do it. This is what leaders do when it comes to leading equitably and inclusively. They make it super complicated because they are afraid to do it wrong. And, and, and then ironically, 
or maybe not ironically. And then the act of not doing anything is causing the very harm that you're trying <laughs> to right. avoid. Right. Yes. It's like it's, yes. you know, I, I go back to uh, I sat in on a really uh, powerful session with Minda, Minda Hartz, who I mean, I mm-hmm. think this is a quote. I have so many quotes that are just seared into my heart now. And this is one that I swear I say once a week to myself and to other people. Nobody benefits from your caution, but so many yes. can benefit from your courage. That's and right. and, you know, and, and that. That that fear of doing it wrong, I feel it. I certainly work through that myself mm-hmm. as a, a white woman on this journey. And yep. one of the things that has um, shifted was realizing that and in the moment of doing it wrong, if that like when that happens, not if let's be real, it's not if it's. Yeah, when. exactly. Yes, it's. And I'm I know I'm I will learn. I yep. know I will do differently. I know it might mm-hmm. not be comfortable, but. But but I would rather do it, try it. It's we had we had this makes me think of we had a hold on a second. Let me I want to get the image of her in my head. We had a client once who said, I'd rather get caught trying. You know, Mm -hmm. when it comes to trying to do things differently, trying to create a more human first approach, like I'd rather get caught caught trying. And and one of the things I'll say Right. When she said that, it was like, oh, hold on. I need to be paying you for all this wisdom you're giving us <laughs> um, for this language that for people. So for people who are listening, who might see themselves maybe in my story experience or as we're talking about, you know, the fear of doing it wrong. Um, you. You sh- you show how basically any interaction you have with somebody is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Every, every interaction you have when people are talking about somebody is an opportunity. And every single one. <laughs> every single one. Yeah. To make a way. Yeah. We we have way more opportunities to make a way in any given day than, than we think. And your point earlier, you know, when we were talking about how complex we make this, I, I always try to be really careful because you cannot address racism at work you cannot address equity at work without also addressing systems like i'm not Mm. saying in my book that systems don't matter that's not Mm. what i'm saying what i'm saying is as long as we only talk about it as systems work and not as human work we are going to continue to think about this work in a very distant emotionally distant way yeah because we think about systems as separate distinct detached things from us as people. We think about them as a series of, you know, a a bunch of strategies and tactics and metrics and goals and monitoring systems and forums. Like when we think systems, that's what we think about. There is nothing about that that makes me feel Mm. inspired or powerful or able or present or connected. And without that, we don't get to know people who are not like us in a deeper way. We don't see them for who they are. We don't notice the moments we have to recognize them, to credit them, to care for them, to show up for them. And so for me, the human part of this is getting left behind because Mm. everybody's saying, this is systems work. This is systems work. 
So that's kind of what I was trying to balance in the Waymakers. Like, yes, and. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes, and. Yeah. It's the, it's the like, here's the technical stuff we need to fix. Here's Mm -hmm. the transactional. And here's the transformational. And together, right? It's a multi-pronged approach. And, and there is something connect. So connected to that. Yeah. Because the human problems need human solutions. I think I mm-hmm. underline that and I start it. <laughs> and, and I think you even use this term, this is heart work. You know, there's a yeah. couple of times where you mentioned of, I can't, I can't teach you to care. <laughs> like right. if you don't care, but, but, but can I create experiences or opportunities for you to, be connected on at a, at a human level. Um, yeah. What was I, which might make you care, which might make you care. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So for for people who are listening, I, (laughs) I, I try to distill my, you know, all of my highlights, all of my six pages of that into, so there's a quote and you said, sometimes we're, we're in a work environment. We make compassion too complicated. We're so busy trying to be appropriate that we fail Mm. to be human. Yes. and one of the things that it struck me, it made me sad, and I understood was when you talked about that you found that one of the most powerful ways to get people to tap into their empathy mm-hmm. was to hear stories from people they know, people who are in yeah. there. And, and that, you know, that it struck me for a couple of reasons. One, because I've seen companies um, lean into, lean into, we want to hear from our colleagues of color to share their experiences. Tell me your black stories. But, but it wasn't done purposeful. Mm -hmm. It wasn't done safely. It wasn't done, Mm -hmm. um, with intentionality, uh, of why are we doing this? So I'm curious to, you know, because I could hear in reading your voice that there's a real, um, tension for you, in this yeah. being the reality. And and I, and I will just really quickly share from experience that, you know, when we're talking, when we're doing our work about avoidance, we, we talk about power dynamics. We talk about, and we're trying to bring more of that in. And I know that me talking about that intellectually isn't the same as when somebody goes, I actually don't feel safe speaking up in this group because mm-hmm. I'm the only black woman. I mean, this just happened on Tuesday. Yeah. And in this beautiful moment of courage and and, and the, the team received it, but it was hearing her talk, seeing mm-hmm. her pain. That's right. And this is what makes me sad is that yeah. that's what shifted people to go, oh, we got to we got to think about this differently. So I'm just mm-hmm. I'm curious. Yeah. To hear more from you. Well, it, it is it's a dilemma. Mm. You know, it, it is a dilemma because on one side we say. We don't want to, you know, ask people to access their trauma Mm. for your insight or understanding. Like when you say it like that, you're like, that's not cool. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not appropriate to do that. It's not, it's not human to do that. We should not be doing that. But the flip side of that coin to your point is until I hear someone I know and care about tell me something hurts. It remains somebody else's problem and opportunity. Mm. It's, it's like we, we observe that those people over there are suffering in this way or with this thing. And we remain in this sympathy posture Mm. 
Like Mm. all of those poor people dealing with those poor things. Mm. But when someone in our circle, someone we know, someone we work with every single day, someone we respect, you know, someone we've solved problems with, when they say, I have this pain, I'm dealing with this thing, I'm struggling in this way, we're like, huh, what? And, And that's where the humanity comes in. So what I'm not suggesting, which some companies did, is that we have a town hall forum and ask three black people to come and each tell their black story for 10 minutes so we can all listen and watch and gawk and shake our heads and go, that is terrible. (laughs) And then leave the town hall and be like, those poor black people. Mm. That is not the right way Mm. to do this. Mm. And many companies did do it. And I have close friends quite honestly. And are still doing it. And are still doing it. Close Mm -hmm. friends who called me and said, my company asked me to do this. I said, tell them no. No, that you will not do that. Now, what I have facilitated, though, is bringing together intimate groups of people across difference to help everybody understand the state of the union, if you will, Mm -hmm. what are the macro issues at play here, and then ask them to draw out their personal lived experiences in ways that we can actually discuss. What did you hear? How did that land on you? How did it feel to say that out loud? What does it mean to you in your day-to-day work experience? How does this manifest? What can these people here who work with you every day glean from that so they can lead differently? To me, you can, if you access the trauma, you better have a damn good reason why. Mm. And everyone <laughs> better understand what they're actually going to do with it. Yeah. I probably talked too long just No, then, you don't. Like, I was it's... trying to explain it. No, you're, <laughs> you, you can, you take whatever time you need. I'm just gonna, it's, uh, I mean, I'm thinking about experiences I've been part of where it was, oh no, we access the trauma. Or, mm-hmm. you know, or you hear the stories of it. And, and also, you know, and I also think what's different and what I hear from you is, you know, and you tell the story about the woman who reached out to you the night before and said, how honest should I be? Yes. And, and so, I mean, part of what also makes it different is that you create a container of safety yes. and a container of healing, because I think that's, that's one of the things that uh, has become so abundantly clear for, for me in this work is, we 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 work with a lot of leaders. We work we facilitate a lot of difficult discussions, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's however yeah. when we're talking about trauma, it really needs a nuanced expert trauma-informed approach uh, yeah. of creating the space uh, for the people who are receiving and how to do that, you know, and and, and how to mm-hmm. activate them and what do we do with this so that it isn't just uh, that, you know, we remain in a sympathy posture, that yeah. phrase, um, and, and to take really good care of the person who, who was courageous and took that risk in speaking up and right. And, 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 and helping them, I don't want to say recover, but navigate what, what it was probably, a could, could be a traumatizing experience. For sure, for sure. And you know, what I always do after someone reveals themselves in that way is I really intentionally use it as a coaching moment for everyone who heard it. Mm. So it's 
You know what I mean? Like, it's mm-hmm. one thing to say to the person who said it, wow, what an experience that is. Um, here's what I think about that or how I feel about that or how I'm responding to that. But I try to just be really intentional about the uh, the helpful way, the supportive way we should hear it mm. and mm. respond to it. So, you know, something like that took a lot of courage for you to say that. I'm sure the people in this room um, probably didn't fully appreciate or understand that you're carrying that particular burden. Mm. This gives them the opportunity now, right, to see what you're experiencing in a new way and to think through how they want to show up from here on out as a Mm. more supportive, enabling leader. So I'm very intentional. It's like, okay, you just accessed your trauma. You shared it with us so that we can be wiser, right, about what you're experiencing. And now I'm actually going to coach in 90 seconds everybody else in this room about how they can appropriately receive that and change tomorrow. Mm. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's all, you know, because you're can in the I, work. It's can all I be really a, an apprentice? I just want to, I mean, it's so, well, and, and because it, 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 mm. I don't even know where to go with, there's so, there's so much skillfulness, intentionality and care and awareness that you, I mean, you, you clearly you bring uh, to the table and, and it's, I don't, um, a little, I'm just going to let, I'm just going to be speechless for a little bit and just, (laughs) and hearing that because, because it, um, boy, that, okay, let's talk about fence sitters because that, that idea we remain in, in sympathy. And, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about just for my, my own journey, because I realized that I thought I knew, Like, I thought I knew enough. I thought yeah. I understood it. And I understood, I understood racism and the history. And I, I thought I understood it. And it, it wasn't until, right, I had mm. people close to me who were willing to share that I started yeah. to see differently, that I started to hear differently, that it was um, like, I thought I, I just, I thought I understood. And I thought not you know, proud, but this is the thinking, Mm -hmm. but I'm a good person. And I, you know, right. And so (laughs) I want to, I want to talk about a couple of things here, because one of the things I have, like good people and good intentions, like I want to, I want to go into that space. Um, If you're okay, I want to read a section, although there was Mm -hmm. one area where I'm like, I want, I just want to read it. Okay. So (laughs) the, the real this, and I, I literally just shared this with a a client right before we got on this call uh, because it was just, it was right there. And suddenly now I even saw that differently, right. Of here's, mm-hmm. here's language. So the real culture change is not about good people or bad people. It's about choices, ownership, and discipline to believe ugh, this, to believe equity can be achieved by relying on leaders to be kind and to do the right thing suggests that inequity exists because some unkind people did some wrong things, which clearly oversimplifies a system designed and propagated to advantage some and disadvantage others. And, Mm -hmm. and, and also that, you know, I, I can connect to that, the limiting belief of, but I'm a good person. And we label ourselves as, well, I'm good and they're bad instead of, no, I'm just human. And there are times when we show up 
um, good. There are times when we, sh- we, we, we cause harm. There are times when we're showing up from a place of bias, unchecked bias, right? Um, so I just, yep. I don't even know what my question is in that, but I just don't want to unpack this idea and then explore that idea of the fence sitters because anyway, yeah, we'll just start there. That's your, you like that messy introduction of here, here's 13 doors I I want you to consider opening. I honestly love it. Um, trying to figure out how to walk through 13 doors at once (laughs) is my specialty. (laughs) Um, you know, he, here's the way I think about this, and it's kind of connected to the idea in the book where I talk about what I learned in the research, which is that many black and brown people enter the workforce with a psychological safety deficit. Yeah. So that idea in there is sometimes I say to leaders, you know, you people do not feel psychologically safe, and they respond to me and they say, but I didn't do anything wrong. Mm. I didn't do anything to mm. harm them. And I say, I understand that. But they came in with a little bit of a deficit. And so it's not enough for you to not do anything wrong. You actually Mm -hmm. have to do something to cultivate the safety. Yes, you did not destroy it, but it, it is not present. And so you need to create it. So this idea of, you know, I'm a good person I didn't do anything wrong. You know, I want to do the right thing, as I talk about in the book, assumes too much. Mm. It assumes that just because you're a good person, you know what the right thing is. And when it comes to affecting experiences that you've never had and that you probably haven't given much thought to until 2020, (laughs) I think that assumes too much Mm -hmm. that you know what the right thing is. It also assumes that even if you know what the right thing is, that you have the courage to do it. Mm. I always like to liken these things to our like normal life. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like if you make a mistake in a relationship that means everything to you and the person on the other side of that is really angry, do you all, you might be a good person and maybe you didn't upset them on purpose. (laughs) And you wanted to do the right thing, but you did not. (laughs) (laughs) You don't always know what to do to reconcile that relationship. And even when you do know the right thing to do, it is not always easy to do it. So this idea that it is sufficient Mm. to be a nice person and to be kind and somehow inequity is going to right itself is, is false on those two levels. One, being nice is does not automatically mean you know what to do and that you're brave enough to do it, mm. you know. And, and the other piece of it is sometimes it's you have no impact on the situation. Like you, I didn't do anything wrong. You have no impact on it. But if the situation starts in a bad place, you have no impact on it. Mm. Right? Like yeah. you're thinking I didn't do anything. And I'm saying, you didn't do anything. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, you didn't do anything. You you didn't make this any better. Right. And you could be. Right, right. You you could be, but you didn't. And you're not. Yeah. You know? I think I got through nine doors, not 13. You you got through nine. Let's hit hit the rest of them, and then I'll add a few more. Our guest this week has been Tara J. Frank, and you can join us next week for the conclusion of our conversation. 
And we want to hear from you. You can reach out to us at podcast at sarahnillwilson.com or find me on social media where my DMs are always open. If you'd like to find out more about our work and how we can help you and your teams have te- uh, conversations that matter, check us out at sarahnillwilson.com. You can also pick up a copy of my latest book, Don't Feed the Elephants, wherever books are sold. And if you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a patron. You can visit patreon.com slash conversations on conversations, where not only your financial support will sustain this podcast and our amazing team that makes it happen, but you also get access to some pretty great stuff. And if you haven't already, please rate and write a review and subscribe to the show. And uh, you can do so on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. This helps us get the word out and continue bringing on amazing guests each week. Thanks to our incredible team who makes this podcast possible, to our producer, Nick Wilson, sound editor, Drew Knoll, transcriptionist, Olivia Reinert, and marketing consultant, Caitlin Summit Nelson. And a big final thank you to Tara J. Frank. Again, please join us next week for part two, where we will continue this incredible conversation. This has been Conversations on Conversations. Thank you so much for listening and joining us this week. And remember that when we can change the conversations we have with ourselves and with each other, we can change the world. So please take care, everyone. Make sure that you rest and rehydrate. And we'll see you again next week.